Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Well, like I said, it is good to be back in the book of Hebrews. I know it was just one week out, but man, I missed it. I I missed getting to share with you the treasures that I'm seeing in this book. And so to set up our time in our passage this morning, what I want to do is I actually want to draw your attention to the title of our sermon. It's on the front of your bulletins if you got one of those. Um, Normally, I don't make much of a deal about this the titles, but I think this week there's a couple words in there that help us see where we're going to go in this passage. So the title is Living as the People of the Great Priest. Okay, that's kind of the flag that's flying over this passage. Now there's two things in that title that I want to draw your attention to. The first word I want you to key in on is living. Living. See, it should not surprise you at all that the sermon this morning is going to be about Jesus as our great priest. If you've been coming, that should not be a shocker to you because that's been all over the book of Hebrews. In fact, I'm going to do a flyover to kind of give you a taste for like, oh yeah, that has been everywhere. So how have we seen Jesus as our priest? Well, the, very, the third verse of the book kind of hints at it, saying that like a priest, Jesus has made purification for sins. So right out of the gate, we're like, hey, that sounds like a priest. Chapter 2 told us that Jesus had to take on flesh and blood because he had to be made like us in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Chapter 3 then called us to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Chapter 4 told us that since we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness, that we should draw near to the throne of grace, to find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Chapter 5 talked about how Jesus was appointed a high priest like Melchizedek. And we left chapter 5 having no idea what that meant. So chapter 7 told us what does it mean that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek. Chapter 8 showed us how Jesus is a high priest of a better covenant. Chapter 9 showed us how Jesus is a high priest in better holy places who brings better blood. And chapter 10 already has showed us how Jesus is a high priest who offers a better sacrifice. So it should not surprise you in the least that we're going to talk about Jesus as our priest this morning. But what's different about this text is that now, after the author has laid out all of that, all that it means that Jesus is our priest, now he's going to tell us how that's meant to impact and change our lives. That's what the word therefore in verse 19 is doing. It's tipping us off that, hey, all the good news we've been talking about for weeks, in fact, months, he's saying that, hey, that's meant to do something. That's not just interesting facts. It's meant to lead to changed lives. And so we're going to see, okay, that's great that we've been seeing how Jesus is a priest. What does that mean for me tomorrow morning? That's what we're going to see in our text. We're going to see how we should live Now, the second part of the title I want to draw your attention to is it says, living as the people. The people. See, this passage is not just about how to live as a person who has a great priest, but as part of a people who have a great priest. Scan your eyes back over the passage to see what I mean, why I'm saying it's about a people. He starts off, therefore, brothers, that word can mean brothers and sisters, so it's Addressed to the group, since we have confidence 
There's the way he opened for us, since we have a great priest. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast our hope. Let us consider one another, together, one another. All through this passage, he peppers it with these words because it's a passage about a community of people and how we live together as the people of Jesus, the great priest. Okay, now our passage breaks down really clearly. In fact, this passage gives us our outline. It's very helpful for me as a preacher when the passage tells you, here's how I should be structured. So you can see it right there. I want you to see that I'm not getting creative. It's right there in your Bibles. It gives us two reasons and then three responses. It tells you two things that we have together as the people of Jesus and then three things we are to do together. So two reasons, three responses. Do you see that in the text? Verse 19, since we have. Verse 21, since we have. Two reasons. Then, well, what should we do because of those two things? Verse 22, let us. 23, let us. 24, let us. Whenever you see those in your Bibles, key in on those. It's telling you how he's organized and what he wants you to get out of it. Okay, so that's our outline this morning. There's two reasons and three responses. So let's look at our first reason together. The first thing we have. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So what is the first thing we have? I'm saying, you might think confidence. I'm saying the first thing we have, though, is access. The first thing we have in our passage is access. We are now able to come in. That's what's different. Come in where? To the holy places. Into God's presence. We used to be locked out. Could not get in. No way in. Why couldn't we get in? Well, the answer is actually right there in the name of the place. It's the holy places. That means clean, pure, spotless, without sin, good, beautiful, right, And that place is a holy place because that's where God dwells. And God is a holy God. The place is holy because the God who dwells there is holy. So what's the problem? Why can't we just go on in? Because the problem is we are not holy. All those things I just said, clean, pure, without sin, good, beautiful, right, that is the antonym for what we are. That is the opposite. We are sinners. We're not basically good people. In fact, we are persistently rebellious and endlessly creative in how we sin. Just think back over your life. Think of all the different ways you, just you, have found to sin against God. Now multiply that by the billions of people in the world. We we are experts at coming up with ways to rebel against God. We don't love God with our hearts And we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. And that comes out in thousands of ways. The bottom line is we are unclean and unholy. And that's the very problem. We can't enter the holy places because we are unholy. We don't belong. We can't get in. If we were to try to get in, if we think, okay, I'll sneak through. If we were to try to go into God's presence on our own, we'd be consumed by his holiness. We sang it this morning. What other glory consumes like fire? And we're going to see it later in the book of Hebrews. God's holiness is not something to trifle with. When It's like the bug that flies too close to the zapper. It's like it doesn't belong there. That's what happens when sin enters into the presence of holiness. Sinners can't get close to a holy God. Hebrews 12 says there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So what's the answer? That's the problem. What's the answer? How do unholy people become holy? What can we do? Can we clean ourselves up? Can we, can we double down and try harder? I know I haven't actually been given it my all, but I, starting this week, I will. Can we do all the good things we can? Can we go to church more? Can we read our Bible more? Can we pray more? 
Friends, none of that will work. Only one thing can make us holy. And it's what we talked about last time in chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 10. We have been sanctified. That's a word that means made holy. We have been made holy. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's the only way. That's the only way we're made holy. Because when Jesus died on that cross, he made sinful, dirty people like you and me holy. And when our hearts were stained with sin, only one thing could make us clean. And that was the blood of Jesus. And because he died in our place to make us holy, now it says we have confidence to enter the holy places. Why? How can we come? What's our entrance? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Now what is that talking about? Through the curtain. That's a very uh, Bible-sounding phrase if you're not familiar with what he's talking about. Well, back in chapter 9, the writer told us about the earthly holy places, right? That's how he set up all of chapter 9. He laid out the tabernacle and what, was, what the sections were and what you could find in each place and why it was there. And, and as he's laying it out, he talked about how there's the innermost holy place, the place where God is, and it's blocked by a curtain. Only the high priest got to go in and only once a year. And chapter 9, verse 8 says that that setup with that curtain and those sacrifices, all that setup was meant to tell us something. Do you remember? Chapter 9, verse 8, it says, By this, this whole setup, this curtain, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open. He said, as long as these sacrifices are happening, as long as these priests are here, as long as they keep offering those particular, that kind of blood in this manner, in this place, as long as this pattern keeps going over and over and over and over and over, the way in is not yet open. It's still closed. What we needed was a different way. We needed a new way. And that's what it tells us Jesus gave us. A new and living way. We don't just have hope, right? We have a living hope. A living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. So now, the good news is that sinners don't need to stand back. We used to have to keep a distance. But because of the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter in. We can enter the holy places. And we don't just get to come in. We can come in confidently why can we be confident because we know how we'll be received have you ever had to like knock on a door of somebody that like you weren't totally sure about them or the situation you're like i need to go see them but i'm a kind of hope they don't answer the door right maybe it was a boss maybe it was a teacher maybe it was i don't know who but there's somebody and you're you find yourself i'm just gonna okay you brace yourself. The door opens and you kind of make your way in and you're scared. And some of us, that's how we go to God. But this says, friend, you don't have to go that way. You don't, because of Jesus, you don't need to tiptoe in. You don't need to lurk outside trying to make up your mind if you should, if you should or you shouldn't. And maybe it'd be easier to go back. Maybe I'll come back later. Like, no, you can go in confidently because you won't be turned away. You won't be locked out. And you know what you'll find? You won't be met with annoyance. You won't be met with him saying, what are you doing here? At this time? You're back again? Seriously? You will never hear that. What you'll be met with is open arms. With a smile. With grace and mercy. Why? Because Jesus opened the way for us through his flesh and blood. So that now we can confidently enter into the holy places. That's the first thing we have together as the people of the great priest. Now let's look for the second one in verse 21. Verse 21 says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now there's there's a lot packed in there, right? I just said he spent most of the book talking about Jesus as our great priest. So he's kind of using a little placeholder. But there's one thing I want to key in on about having a great priest. 
Because what's amazing is that he doesn't just give us access to this holy place, like, all right, go on in. We also have an advocate in the holy place. We have access into and an advocate in the holy place. It's not just that Jesus gets us in the room. He doesn't phone, phone ahead and say, hey, when they show up, go ahead and let them in. And we still walk in saying, I'm not sure what's gonna, what I'm going to find here. We find Jesus. We find Jesus in the holy place, and he's there for us. Hebrews 9.24, Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. As our great priest, Jesus is in there. He's in the holy places, in the presence of God, and he's there for us. Right now, Jesus is there, and do you know what he's doing? He's interceding for us. He's helping us. Hebrews 7.25 says, He's able to save to the uttermost, who? Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does that mean? Let's, again, that's kind of a churchy word. He makes intercession. We could say, yeah, sounds good. I have no idea what it means, but it's mildly encouraging nonetheless. But I don't, want, I don't want mildly encouraging. I want you to feel it in your bones. I want you to know what is Jesus doing when he intercedes. When he intercedes, it mainly means two things. It means he's pleading on our behalf and he's advocating for us in two areas. He's advocating for our pardon and for our provision. For our pardon and our provision. First, Jesus intercedes for us. When the enemy tries to make his case against us, when the enemy calls to mind all the stuff you've done, all the stuff you've done, not just like in the ancient past, but this week. When he throws out there and says, remember when you said that? Remember when you did that? Oh, remember when you didn't do that? Failure, failure, sin, sin. When he lays out the evidence and says, look, look what he's done. He's guilty. When our sins and our guilt over all that we've done, they threaten to condemn us. And we think, oh, this looks bleak. Because everything he's saying is right. I can't say, no, I didn't. I did. I did everything he said and he forgot some. So when all that is laid out and we're being threatened to be condemned and separated from being close to God, do you know what happens? Romans 8.34 happens. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. When, why is he doing that? Because he's our great priest. When our sins threaten to condemn us, Jesus, as our priest, steps in and says, I paid for that. When our sins rise up, he pleads his blood on our behalf. He holds up his nail-scarred hands and says, see that? That was for him. See that? That was for her. That was for that sin and that sin and that sin. And this is for all of their sins. I paid for them. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in me. Friends, this is what it means in 1 John 2 when we read, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. I, I thought long and hard about how to say this, and the best way I know how to say this is I found an old song, some of you may know, written by Charles Wesley. If you want to put up the first slide, I'm just going to read this to you. This is our passage. It says, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for every race. His blood atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. That means they work. 
They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. That's what he prays. And then my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence, I now draw nigh. With confidence, I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. That's what it's saying here. That's what it means that we have an advocate. That's what it means that he ever lives to make intercession for us. All that's in that little phrase, since we have a great priest. That's what your great priest is doing right now for you. We have someone who will vouch for us, who will speak up on our behalf, who will claim us as his blood-bought brothers and sisters. But it's not just our pardon that he advocates for. It's our provision. Back in chapter 4, remember, I already quoted it. It says that because we have a great priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? To find grace and receive mercy to help in time of need. As our great priest, Jesus is at the Father's right hand advocating for everything we need. Jesus knows what you need. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, it says, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So I want you to think about this. There is nothing that you need that Jesus isn't interceding for you on your behalf. Right now you can run a laundry list of everything you think, well, yeah, but I got this going on and this is coming up and here's what I'm feeling. Jesus is interceding for you for that. He knows what you need this morning. He knows where you feel weak. He knows where you feel tired. He knows where you feel tempted. He knows where you feel stuck and not sure where to go from here. He knows all that and he cares. And because he cares, he's interceding for you right now before his father. Friends, Jesus himself is praying for you. In Luke 22, we get a little glimpse of what this looks like. In Luke 22, Jesus, you might remember, tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. He wants you, Simon. He wants to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So what kept Peter? This is right before Jesus gets arrested and is put on this false trial. And how does Peter respond? Is he a, an act of, is it a monumental act of faith and valor? We say, wow, Peter, you were so bold and courageous for Jesus. No, Peter blows it big time. He's at his lowest moment. Three times he denies his Lord. He's ashamed. He's guilty. He's at his lowest. And what, what gets someone through that? How do you get through a period where you know that you've just made a train wreck of everything you've seen about Jesus, everything you know? You're the one that said, you are the, you are the son of God. And he's like, good answer, Peter. That's you. And now here you are saying, I don't even know that guy. How do you come back from that? How do you get through and not just say, ah, it's all over. There's no way I can ever be restored. How do you get through? Jesus prays for you. So how are you going to get through when you blow it this week? When you do something that right now seems unthinkable. And you think there's no way I would ever say that or do that or go there or click that or... How are you going to come back from that? How are you going to keep trusting Jesus? When that thing happens that right now terrifies you and you hit rock bottom, what's going to keep you trusting? Jesus prays for you right now. This is our hope. This is how you can have confidence that tomorrow I'm going to wake up still a Christian because it's not up to me. It's up to my great priest who is interceding for me. He is our great priest over the house of God. Okay, so let's bring those two together now. We've got two realities that are true for us in Christ. 
two possessions, if you will. What do we have? We've got confident access to God's presence and a great priest who intercedes for us there. That's what we've got, friends. That'd be enough if I just say, isn't that good news? Let's go home. But he says, nope. Because of those two things, he says, now I want to tell you, how should you live? Those two things are meant to change us, reorient us. So how should we respond to those two glorious truths? Our first response is verse 22. So therefore, since we have this confident access and a great priest, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the first way we respond is we draw near to God. Now this should be intuitive, right? Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he says, let's actually do it. Let's actually draw near. Having access doesn't matter if we don't actually come close. And how does it say that we draw near? First it says we come with a true heart. This means that we come real. We come honest. We come sincere. We don't fake it. We don't go through the motions of religion. We come with genuine faith. And we come not just in faith, but in full assurance of faith. Confidently trusting that Jesus has done everything that's needed for me to be able to draw near. Well, what gives us that assurance of faith? It's the fact that our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We talked about this a couple chapters ago. But all the guilt and all the shame that makes us want to keep our distance from God, they're gone. They've been sprinkled clean. So we're not hiding our sin. We're not covering anything up. And this is really important. This is, this is key because too often I, I think we believe that for us to draw near to God, to get really close to him, to actually know God, to, to, to feel like this is more than just a perfunctory thing, that I, I really know God, that means I can't have any sin in my life. So what happens is, we get this wrong in two different ways, actually. Usually they work hand in hand. On the one hand, when we're fully aware of our sin, when we're at that low point, we know we messed up, we know we sinned, we don't come. You're like, I, I know what I did. So we tell ourselves, I don't deserve to come close. That's, that's like a privilege for those who don't have sin. I have sin. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to. I'm a bad Christian. So we, we keep God at arm's length. We tell ourselves that we need to wait until we're doing better. You know, give it a little time. We basically this self-imposed penance. That if, if maybe if I just don't get to come to God for a day or a week, really kind of beat myself up about it, then, then I can deserve to come before him again. Which leads to the second way we get it wrong. Because then time goes by, or maybe it's a different season of life, and we think, you know what? Actually, I'm doing pretty well. I feel like I'm kind of crushing this Christian thing. Like, I'm going to church, I'm reading my Bible. I, I even shared the gospel with a guy yesterday. And so we think, well, I, surely I can come because look at all the things I'm doing. I deserve to be here. The thing that this, this destroys both of those because it helps us see that our being able to draw near to God isn't about how bad we've been or how good we think we are. It's about how great our priest is. Because our sins can't keep us away and our best efforts don't get us closer. We draw near in full assurance of faith. Faith in what? Faith that Jesus, our high priest, has offered his own blood to pay for all my sins and open the way for me to come close to God. Faith that as I come to God, even in my worst moments, because of Jesus, I come with a clean heart and a clear conscience. I can come with all my mess and all my sin because my welcome with God is based on Jesus and not on me. So friends, even on our worst days, we can draw near. That's what it means to have full assurance of faith. It's not faith that I think I'm doing pretty well. It's faith that I know Jesus did well. And so I can come, we ought to come, even at our worst. 
There's nothing that's holding you back. In fact, as I thought about the passage this week, something I found really helpful as I thought about these three responses, it helped me to understand them when I thought about what would the opposite look like? It's a helpful exercise as you read your Bibles. If you're not sure, like, what would it look like to do this? Think about, well, what would it look like to not do that? So what would the opposite of drawing near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith look like? Well, it would mean that you keep your distance from God. That you, you don't get too close. You don't get too involved. You don't get too invested. Maybe it's because you're not sure what you'll find if you do draw near. Maybe, if you're honest, you're afraid to draw near to God. You know your sins and you, and you let your guilt and your shame keep you away. You're a mess and you don't feel like you can go to God the way that you are. So you hang back. You don't, you don't run away, but you don't come close. You just kind of lurk in the corner. Wanting to be near, but not too, not too near. You wait until you feel a little bit cleaner. Friends, that's exactly why these verses are in your Bible. Because you don't have to wait. You don't have to keep your distance. You can go to God right now in all your sin and all your mess and all your brokenness. Do you know why? Because we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Because we have a great priest who's offered himself as the perfect sacrifice and is now interceding for us. So it's not up to like whether or not how bad your sins were or how good your efforts were. It's about Jesus. That's why you can always have confidence whether it was your best day or your worst day. Jesus' days, they're all good. And so if it's today, as long as it is called today, go to him. Draw near, press in, and you will find him welcoming you. I got myself all in a tizzy now. I don't know where I am. <sighs> okay. So we can draw near in full assurance of faith. In fact, not only can we draw near in full assurance of faith, I say we draw near because we can't help it. We can't help it. We want, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you want to be close to God. You need to be close to God. And this drawing near, it's not a one-time thing. Like that is, This is not an evangelistic text. This is not saying, hey, unbeliever, you should draw near. It's saying, Christian, keep drawing near. Come back, come back, come back. Because this is what Christians do. We draw near to God. We want to be closer. We want to be in God's presence. We say with David in Psalm 73, for me, it is good to be near God. It's the only way we're going to make it home if we keep drawing near. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, a pastor in Wales, put it. He said, it is only when I am near to God in Christ that I know my sins are forgiven. I feel his love. I know I am his child. And I enjoy the priceless blessings of peace with God and peace within and peace with others. I'm aware of his love and I am given a joy that the world can neither give nor take away. He says that's all true only when I draw near to God in Christ. So the question for you this morning is, when's the last time you drew near? When's the last time you approached God in Christ and felt that liberating certainty my sins are forgiven. That certainty, not just, I don't mean just that you know that's the right answer. I mean that, that relief, that comfort, that freedom deep in your soul that you know that if Jesus were to part the clouds right now, that you would be safe in him. That you know there is not a spot or a blemish on you. Because your sins are forgiven. When is the last time you drew near to God through Jesus and you knew that you were his child? That you know that he loves you? When have you last tasted the joy of being near him? 
a joy that I love how Lloyd-Jones said it, a, a joy that the world cannot give you and a joy that the world cannot take away from you. Friends, you can do that today. That's the beautiful thing. The Bible is filled with invitations to come. Do you know why? Because Jesus has secured our welcome. Think of all the, just, I hope when you go through your Bible, if you write in your Bible, underline all the invitations from God. Come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Come, hear that your soul may live. Come, come, come. You know why he invites you to come? Because Jesus has made us welcome. He paid our way and now invites us to come as those who are truly guilty and truly forgiven. Because he is our great priest, we can draw near in full assurance of faith. That's our first response. Draw near. Second response is verse 23. Look there. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So the second response is hold fast the confession of our hope. Now what does that mean? That that means more than just being an optimistic person. More than just being a hopeful person. Not just... You're the sun will come out tomorrow looking on the bright side. That's not what this is saying when it says hold on to the confession of our hope. It's not just any hope. Notice it's our hope. It's a hope that you and I share. Now you might have hopes for something that have nothing to do with me. And I might have hopes that like you could care less whether that ever comes to be. But there is a hope that we as followers of Jesus share. And it's shared by all who are trusting in Jesus. It's the hope that we've seen in Hebrews. Think about what we've seen in Hebrews. Our hope is that Jesus has paid for our every sin. Our hope is that he's made us holy and able to draw near to God. Our hope is that he has changed us and is changing us on the inside, giving us both the ability and the desire to obey God. Our hope is that he has rescued us from the devil who has the power of death and he's rescued us from the fear of death. Our hope is that we are on our way home to a land of rest, a heavenly country. And right now, our hope is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, giving us all we need to keep going on that journey. And our hope is that one day, Jesus will come back, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is our hope. And the God who promised all that is faithful he always keeps his promises that's why we spent that week if you remember in chapter six where it told us that it is impossible for god to lie on top of that he guaranteed his promises with an oath chapter six verse 18 why did he do that so that by two unchangeable things we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us god says hold on Hold on. Why must he tell them to hold on? It's always good. This is another good Bible study question. When you see a command, think, why is that there? What is it about them? What is it about me that God said that needs to be in the Bible? So why did he need to tell them to hold on? The answer is simple. Because we're all tempted not to. The opposite, remember think opposites again. The opposite of holding fast is letting go. It's letting go of hope. We give up. We stop trusting God. We look for for other hopes in other places. Friends, we'll never find a better hope than in the promises of God. And we'll never find more reliable promises than those made by the faithful God. So we hold fast to our hope. So because we have Jesus as our priest, let us draw near, let us hold fast. And now the third one, look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now there's a lot here, but the main thing we're told to do here is consider. It's consider. Now this is the same word we saw back in chapter 3, verse 1, where it told us to consider Jesus. If you remember from back then, we spent a little time saying, what does that word mean? What does it mean to consider 
Jesus, or in this case, what does it mean to consider something else? The word means to think hard about, to ponder, to, t- to look at, to take notice of, to, to, to think, what does this mean for me? What is, this, what is there about this that I need to understand? That's what it means to consider. Now, it seems like what we're being told to consider here is how to do something. That's how it's translated, and that's because this, this phrase is hard to translate into English. But what we're actually told to consider here is one another. More woodenly literal, it would say, consider one another unto the showing of love and good works. But the object of what I'm to consider, is, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a process. I'm not mainly to consider how to do something. I, I am to do that, but not mainly. Mainly I'm to consider you. And you're to consider me. And we are to consider one another. I, we are what we're to look at. We are to constantly have our eyes up, looking around, thinking long and hard about each other, about the people that God has put around us, to put in serious thought, to not just occasionally, like, oh yeah, I forgot, they're, they're a part of my church. We are meant to help each other. Specifically, though, it says we are to think hard about how to stir each other up to love and good works. Now, that word stir up is sometimes translated provoke. And I find that really helpful. Because we all know what it means to provoke someone, don't we? We know just what it is to, to say something to get in a dig at them. You know that if you say this to your brother, that'll get a rise out of him. You know that if you say that to your friend or your coworker, she's not going to be able to help but just to get worked up. Right? We, we know what to say, what to do to get people worked up, riled up, angry or embarrassed. If someone provokes you, it means that they know how to push your buttons and get you to respond. So you, you don't want to, but you're like, oh, I just can't help myself. Right? That's what it means to provoke someone. Well, we are not called to provoke in that way as Christians. As Christians, we are called to intentionally and thoughtfully figure out how to provoke one another to love and good works. What can I say or do that will make you love Jesus more? How can I push your buttons so that you're going to want to love other people better and want to serve them better through good works? That's how we are to think. about How can I provoke you? Not how can I get under your skin, but man, what can I say or do that's going to, you're, you're not even going to be able to help yourself. You're going to be like, gosh, I love Jesus more. Because of that conversation with him. Because of that thing she did for me. Because of that text, that email, that phone call. Because of just the way they are, their example. What can I say or do that's going to make you want to love better and love more? Notice he gives us two key components of doing that in verse 25. First, he says, don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. It's really simple. You can't help someone else follow Jesus if you never get together with them. Now, this is talking about more than just Sunday mornings. But it is talking especially Sundays. He's telling them and us not to skip out on gathering with one another for corporate worship. He says, some people have made that a habit. And we all know that over the last year... There have been good reasons why some people at first changed habits. There was a season we weren't allowed to gather. And then as we came back, it was not safe for some people. And as time has gone on, though, what's happened is that some people have developed habits. And he says, this is a dangerous habit. Not gathering with other Christians, it's not good for you. When other things start to crowd out gathering with Christians on the Lord's Day, it should raise some warning flags in your own soul. Because Christians love to be with other Christians. Christians love to hear God's word. Christians love to sing God's praises, to learn together, to pray together. Those aren't duties that we do in order to make ourselves feel better or to check a box. We love to do those things. And so it should concern you if you find yourself constantly missing church. If that one week, well, yeah, that one week we were on vacation, but then, and then there was a work thing. And then that one week there was a game that we had. That other weekend there was family in town visiting. And then that one week I was really tired. And then the next week I just had so much to do that I, I just couldn't make it. And then soon you don't even have an excuse. 
You just stopped coming. That should concern you, friends. It should concern us. I had a conversation with someone not at our church recently, and they were talking about another church they go to, and they, they told us that their favorite thing about their church, I use that term loosely, is how short it was. That's their favorite thing, is that they didn't have to be there very long. That should concern you. If the whole point is that we do this, not because we have to, it's because this is for our good. And we say like, oh, the thing I want most is to not be there. Give me in and out. In fact, they did, it was a, yeah, they did this as a to-go thing at the end of the service. Because they didn't, want, they didn't have time to actually stay together to take the, take the Lord's Supper together. They're just on your way out. That should concern us because we need to gather. God has designed, a, he's designed his people to get to the end through the help of one another. And showing up is part of loving each other. But verse 25 says, the opposite of neglecting to meet together is not just showing up. Showing up is necessary, he says, but it's not enough. The opposite of neglecting to meet together is encouraging one another. That's a huge reason why we gather on Sunday. It's not just, we don't just come to get. We come to give. In fact, I, I think we have a fundamental misorientation sometimes in the Western church that we think we should come to give to God, that we owe God something. By my presence here, I'm giving it to him. I'm giving him something that he wants and I'm making him happy by my being there. And we should get from all the people there. I, should, I come to church to give to God and get from the people. The Bible says, no, you come, we come needy. We come with nothing. We come bankrupt and impoverished and starving and say, God, I, I need you. And God gives and gives and gives. And as God gives to us, we come to encourage one another, to give to one another. What happens about church is not just what happens here in this pulpit. It's not about what happens there. It's about what happens in those pews. It's about what happens in these aisles and in that hallway and in that classroom. That's not just additional icing on the cake. That's in the batter. That's part of what church is. We need to gather so that we can encourage one another. We need each other to remind us of what's true and what God has promised. And it says we should do this all the more as we see the day drawing near. As we see the day drawing near when Jesus comes back and all the promises are fulfilled and our faith becomes sight, we don't gather to bellyache about all the problems we see in the world. You can go anywhere to do that. That's not why we gather. We gather to encourage each other, to remind each other about the promises, to tell each other, hold on, to keep going, to say, he's almost here. We're almost home. And it's going to be worth it. And as bad as this is, it, won't, it will pale in comparison to how great it's going to be. So brother, don't let go. Don't get distracted. Don't give in. Keep going. Do whatever you need to do to keep trusting Jesus. And right now, friends, you need each other to do that. We need each other to do that. Did I mention there was a membership class coming up? Okay, I'm just going to put a plug in right there. That's why we have membership. So let me bring this to a, let me tie this up here. This is how we live how we live, not just how we think, how we believe. This is how we live together as the people of the great priests. Because we have access into the presence of God and because we have an advocate who's interceding for us there, we together draw near to God. We together hold fast the confession of our hope and we together consider one another in how to help each other keep going and keep loving Jesus. That is how we live as the people of the great priest. Now one way that we get to draw near together is we take the Lord's Supper together. This is just a very tangible way that we're reminded of everything we just said. That we have access to God, how? Through the flesh, 
and through the blood of Jesus. This is a reminder of that. This is why we do this in remembrance of him so that we don't forget what we just said. And so we do this together. There's a reason that we don't tell you to grab one and take it as you go. It's because this is a family meal. It's for the household of God over which Jesus is our great priest. And this is also a way that we declare the confession of our hope. This is it. We say, my hope is that Jesus' body and blood was shed in my place for my sins. And that's what's not only given me forgiveness, it's given me a family. And so together we take the Lord's Supper. So if you're here and you're visiting and you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here. I would love to tell you more about this Jesus and how amazing he is. But this is something that we reserve just for those who say, this is my hope. If that's not your hope, this doesn't make any sense. So we just ask that you would refrain from taking us. But if you're here and you are trusting in Jesus, that he alone is your hope, we invite you to come forward. We're going to sing a song in a minute. And we ask one person from each household to gather the correct number for those who trust Jesus in your home. And then at the end of the song, I will lead us in taking these together. And just a word about the song. It's one we've, we've sung a few times, but it is a declaration of our hope. This song is the confession of our hope. And so as you sing it, remember, we're doing Hebrews 10. And we're doing it together. And we're drawing near to God through the body and blood of Jesus. This is Hebrews in action. So before we do that, let me pray. And then John will lead us in a song. Father, thank you for this table. Thank you for all that it represents. Thank you that there is a new and living way opened up to us. That Jesus made a way. And he didn't just make a way. He made a way and then invites us in. And he is in there with you right now, interceding for us. God, I pray that this would be our hope. This would be what we look to for our joy and our peace and our rest and our security. That we would find it in your son and in him alone. Thank you for this people that you have formed. God, we pray that now as we celebrate this, that even this act of taking this supper together would remind us that you have brought us together and made us one. So may we take it as the blood-bought people of the great priest. It's in his name we pray. Amen.